Welcome to the Changemakers series brought to you by the Primary Healthcare Program and Quality and Education Department. Please note that our sessions are recorded and will be posted on SoundCloud for shared learning purposes. If you do not wish your name to be public and have questions during the presentation, please feel free to email nicole.farago at ahs.ca or sabrina.singh at ahs.ca and we will happily forward your questions to the presenters. Thank you. has been um, around for a while at the Glen Rose, just retired, but no one wanted to let her go. So she's now the Executive Director of Special <laughs> Projects. Welcome, Isabel. Good morning. And welcome to Have Never Left. Um, we have Lisa Warner, who's the Provincial Director for Community Rehab and is a great thinker and is super busy these days on every single Connect Care um, committee. Um, Lisa, welcome. Thanks, Margie. Good morning, everyone. And then we have Paul, um, who's kind of our local celebrity these days because he's been on the radio now a few times to talk about the NPJ paralysis campaign. Um, but he's the Calgary Zone Manager for Patient and Family Centered, ca centered Care. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me, Margie. No we expect the radio voice from you um, exclusively in this call. <clears throat> So, um, so today we want to talk a little bit about um, the whole idea of a rehabilitation journey and what people tend to think of. Like, I, I think if I were to ask people, I think most people would consider rehab is, um, you know, after a significant event, you, you know, they think of places like the Glen Rose, that you would go there to get your rehab and then you'd leave and you're done rehab. But um, we really, you know, as, as rehab practitioners, and I'll be... Uh, to be fair and honest here, I am as well, so I, I get this bias. We think of rehab as across the whole journey. Um, tell us, uh, you know, I'd like to really kind of first get your perspectives on on transitions and when what rehab actually looks like when you follow a patient's journey um, as opposed to kind of that model that we have in, in our head. Maybe I'll start with Isabel. Sure. Well, you know, um, Margie, I think a quote that's really resonated with me over the last several years is one that um, was uh, was made by Dr. David Naylor, and many of you will know that he was the, pre the president of the University of Toronto, which is one of my alma mater, uh, from 2005 to, I think he retired in 2013. And he what he said, which is very compelling, he said, once you set aside the acute phases or crisis that mark injury or disease, much of modern healthcare is indeed rehabilitation in one form or another. And that's, that's really resonated with, with me. And I think um, in terms of transitions, I was very, very involved with transitions in my previous role um, at the Glen Rose. You know, pa patients would be transitioning from acute care to tertiary rehabilitation. We had, you know, young children with disabilities that were transitioning uh, to adolescents and then to, to adults uh, living with their disability. We had 
uh, folks that were transitioning from the Glen Rose back to their uh, to their homes, and we were very proud to to have about eighty five percent of our of our patients that would return home after their rehab journey. So transition was kind of in our face all the time, and it's been a real um, priority for me. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious because what if what if you actually replace the word rehab or even transitions with the word function? Does that how does that change the conversation for you? Yeah, well, you know, several years ago, um, the World Health Organization um, um, promulgated this international, this ICF, International Classification of Function. And it was really to try to move the health system from focusing on sort of the, the traditional medical model more to um, what um, would be important <laughs> for patients, you know, so things like functional independence, mobility, you know, self-care, social participation, and that's a big thing for patients. Um, Sometimes it's education, sometimes it's work, depending on the particular, um, the age uh, and and situation of the the patient or client. But um, function is uh, something that, uh, you know, as we talk about what matters to me, very often it's 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 functional goals that are really important for the patients you know they want to attend their son's wedding they want to be able to you know walk to the corner store they want to be able to you know walk up the stairs to their bedroom so you know very functional types of, mm-hmm. of uh, goals yeah they want to live their life <laughs> yeah absolutely and they're not so concerned you know whether they can do 20 steps or three flights or you know whatever it's more it's more around their their particular goals. Well, and and Lisa, Mark, if I could add. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask you, we must be on the same wavelength, because I was going to ask you, from a community perspective, you see this a lot, like people who are outside mm-hmm. of that acute care sector. Um, mm-hmm. You've what been in rehab for a while. So tell, tell me a bit about your perspective on Yeah. Well, I'm so fortunate to learn from so many great people out there, including all the zone operational teams and my team itself that helps to support these concepts. And, Through our rehabilitation model of care, um, that is one of our components that we are focusing on, which is transitions. And one of my favorite sayings is that rehabilitation is the golden thread that is everywhere. And um, one thing that I'd actually like to eliminate that word discharge, I don't know if everybody is thinking about that up there, but I'd actually just like to talk about transitions versus saying someone's discharge and something's ending. It's a continuous, you know, episode of care, if you will, uh, in their journey. And... um, you know, we've had the privilege to work with a few of our patient advisors more particularly and uh, looking at what they tell us, what's meaningful for them around transitions. You know, they they are looking for, um, you know, more supports and follow-up. Um, I'd really like to see some more warm handover practices occurring from acute to community. Um, the patients and clients and families are telling us too that, you know, they'd like some follow-up calls or emails um, they'd really like to know where their information is going and what does their physician need to know. And so there's a lot of specifics that we're focusing on through that transitions component in our model of care work. And I think at the end of the day, it really is uh, what is functional for them. And it means so many different things. Um, so maybe I'll leave it at that for now. Well, you draw you draw a couple of really good issues, of a couple of really good points in that, and I think it's that um, number one is is a mindset shift, right? And in order to actually have our system in AHS, which you know, like it or not, is 
predominantly a an acute care system. Um, in order to actually shift that, you need to have a mindset shift away from um, you're you're done. You're now done. Your health journey. Your health or not not health, <laughs> or we've we've fixed you, and now you're out. So it really is, and I think that that thread about function and living your life and how do you interact and now it's almost like a dance with the healthcare system. Can, can um, I can I just add something to Yeah, Mark? of course. Um, you know, I think in the past we've kind of viewed Alberta Health Services as you know as the health system. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very important component, but there are so many other resources that we can draw upon um, that can help us uh, with some with transitions uh, for patients and families and you know we don't have to do everything ourselves in AHS you know we tend to be very dominated by risk aversion and you know some really challenges around uh, change management and you know culture culture clashes if you will yeah. for yeah. those that are determined to give people um, patients choice and um, so I think we are at a crossroads I, I, I would agree, um, and I think it's how do you become a partner? How does AHS how is AHS a partner and not the system? Which again Absolutely. is another shift. Yeah. Well, and and Paul, I'd really like to pull on on you because you come from a nursing training, which is kind of you know more tra- more I'm going to say can be more traditional, more in the medical model. Um, but you really kind of you've really took on a different. Um, approach and you you went into rehab nursing and you really have uh, some some strong um, examples and, and maybe the PJ paralysis is a good one to talk about about how you how you see function and um, the acute world commingling can you tell us a little bit about that yeah for sure I'll chat about PJ paralysis in a second but I think there's some really cool novella and new ideas out there for rehabilitation, not only in a nursing perspective, but for all healthcare providers. Uh, I look at the work that was happening at Glenrose around transitional living suites with patients and families and really focusing on how um, how they're going to do uh, when they get home, ensure that they have that safety piece, that their rehab is functional and that they're able to manage. So really looking at really cool concepts like that. Here in the Calgary zone, uh, we've had a program for the last 10 years called Early Supported Discharge. And it's where we look at and transitioning patients that have had stroke or brain injury uh, to have the rehabilitation at home. Uh, And Isabel talked about the importance of of functional outcomes, what's meaningful to them. Oftentimes when you, when you let them know their outcome of the six minute walk test that, you know, you look, they look at you like you have three heads, but you let them know that you're goal planning around getting to your son or daughter's wedding. And uh, those are the things that are really meaningful. Those what matter to you questions. So I just wanted to highlight there's some really neat and, and, kind of novel ideas out there that I would encourage all all of us on the call today to think about. Um, you know, rehab really does start with with us. It's it's everyone's responsibility. And as a nurse, I think over my time uh, in practice, you know, my concept of what uh, we can do to support patients really changed from that focus of, okay, I just need to focus on my skills today. I need to be really set uh, and make sure that I get these tasks done. But over time, you understand what patients' needs are, and they're really about... Um, you know, that functionality piece of that, what matters to you. So I wanted to highlight that aspect. Uh, in regards to PJ paralysis, I think it fits really well with this. It's because it's that that model of, of shifting care uh, that we've touched a little bit about this morning is doing for, instead of, sorry, instead of doing for patients, we need to shift that model to do with patients. And I, I feel that uh, rehabilitation is exactly that. Uh, you know, it, I always describe it as the moment or the 
right after you've had your injury, rehab is, is starting until, in some cases, for the rest of your life. So it really is a continuum-based model. Uh, but with PGA paralysis, it's really about chatting with uh, patients and families, letting them understand two key concepts, that we want to ensure that they have their respect and dignity of wearing their own clothing in a hospital environment, to give them that uh, sense of dignity, that they can get up and, and walk around and feel comfortable in their own clothes. And there's a bit of a... And, and not have the open gown in the back. Yeah, the ICU gown, as it would yes. like to call it. Uh, <laughs> even that... <laughs> nice. I just, I just got that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, even that gown itself, we've heard from numerous patients throughout our journey this last year, is how that can make them feel that they have, they should feel sick and they should stay in bed. And even that, you know, one aspect of, of coaching and mentoring a patient of getting up and out of bed is huge. And really focusing on that deconditioning piece of, you know, when you're in hospital, we want you to, to be strong, if not stronger when you leave. Uh, and you know, a colleague of ours, uh, Brian Dolan, joked with Isabel about a year ago when he was on a, a conference call that if we do our best to keep our patients physically fit, uh, do we need rehab in the end? And I know that's a, a radical concept, uh, mm -hmm. but, but thinking about that, um, when patients are in hospital, we shouldn't expect that uh, they're going to be weaker when they leave. And it's really important to focus on that aspect. So, you know, for PGA paralysis, it's, it's one small piece of a, a continuum-based rehab model. And why I love it so much is because I shared earlier, it's it's shifting that doing for everything for patients to doing with patients and, and what they're comfortable with as well. Right. Well, that really is a nursing perspective. Like, you know, I, I think about, um, say, for example, family practice nurses, when they do blood pressures, people are like, or they room patients. I'm like, well, why are you rooming patients? And that should, that's not in your skill set. But there's value in, in the activity. And you actually, even though it seems like a, of a more of a task you actually look for the value while you're doing the activity and that's the same with you know as you know as people are looking at their function getting dressed is, can actually be exercise when you're post recovery or when you're I, I, think, I think you know it's it's interesting having worked at the the Glen Rose for 23 years not in the same role but um, you know, people, patients would tell me, you know, how much better the food tasted and, you know, how much better they felt. And, you know, the, they were getting the same food as they were getting when they were at the hospital across the street. And I, I attribute a lot of that to just being up and dressed and, you know, sitting at a table with other people to eat. And, yes. you know, just and feeling like, like yourself. It. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it was not so much that, you know, they were getting all of this intensive therapy that was making the difference I think it was more the you know the environment and just the, a different attitude well and and so we have to be, how do we actually get kind of our, our workforce there and I think there's been some some interesting ideas like Paul I think you've actually highlighted the whole concept of <laughs> really rehab is about what's important to a patient and then how do you match the medical and social needs to get there and that's our, our job is to do that matching and the patient's job is to identify what's important to them and and really, in in a nutshell, that is kind of a bit about what rehab is about, and that mindset about of of how you get there. Would that be kind of a, you know, maybe Lisa? What do you think about no, that frame? No, Margie, that that actually is a great frame. Um, something through our collaborative goal setting practice supports um, that we have for rehabilitation staff across AHS. That's what we focus on: is you know, the client and the family really are the experts on the client. And the rehab clinicians are the experts on the rehab process. And it's bringing that conversation together and really having that 
as we like to say, functional conversation that really is client-centered, and we really do purposely explore that shared decision-making as to what that functional goal is going to be. Mm -hmm. I think there's so many great things going on across AHS, and you're right, Isabel, it's not just about AHS, it's about our community partners and transitioning to other resources and, and um, you know, whether that's even community exercise, all those fun things. I think we're doing many things across AHS for patient and family-centered care, um, even for our um, our uh, staff strategy, you know, what matters to you matters to us. So we're hoping through this conversation, we'd really like to keep the conversation going about what rehabilitation is everyone's responsibility. So kind of what's yours? It could be really neat to move beyond, as Paul was starting to indicate there, and Isabel too, it's not just about what the rehabilitation clinicians do themselves. We're really experts at uh, a lot of the analytics and analyzing the whole person, right from their physical being to their spiritual, cognitive, you know, communicative uh -huh. person that they are. We really look at people holistically. Um, so we're often those experts that can do that super and sub-stepping to guide people in that functional goal setting. We're not always the ones that need to actually do that uh, practice work, if you will, that actually help with the tasks. And I think that's where we have a lot of opportunity to move um, beyond where we've made so much progress in respect and dignity and our information <coughs> sharing. But I think if we really did dig into our participation and how we actually collaborate and set goals with clients, that's going to help this functional movement. It's certainly going on in lots of places, um, but mm -hmm. we, we, have, uh, we have some work to do yet, and, and we'd really look to those on the line today to help us uh, move this philosophy forward and really uh, enhance function across the whole system. So, Lisa, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a challenging question here. Because I'm really, I'm, I'm, there's an interesting piece you picked up on, and I can imagine some people are thinking, well, you know, given, given that rehab's profession is all about, as you said, understanding, you can really do that analysis, understand their goals, understand people's goals holistically, bring that, bring that perspective. Is rehab everybody's business then, or is that something that, that being able to, to dig into that component, is that really rehab's business? So tell me, tell me how you, like, you know, versus the tasks, versus the tasks and the actual, you know, kind of activities. So maybe kind of explore that piece a little bit for me. So is it rehabilitation's business? So is it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I guess, well, the philosophy is we're trying to say it's, it's everybody's business. It's everybody's responsibility. I think rehab can be a leader in that, and we can help, I think, through many methods informally and formally to help uh, work with others and educate others and and train others, but there's lots of things that come naturally to AHS staff and professions um, and to our community partners that are just as valuable, that have a, a rehabilitative value to them. And I think mm -hmm. it's recognizing that. I think uh, rehabilitation clinicians will say, I mean, certainly we're experts, we're generalists, we're specialists in many different areas. Um, but we also are really good at building capacity in others and helping to teach others across the system, and including our, our clients and families and patients, um, how to be partners in care and how to self-manage. So, Right. So there's some rehab mindsets. There are some rehab mindsets that are really important. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and so you've really highlighted that rehab is more than just physio. <laughs> um, 
So let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about getting that rehab mindset and and, and understanding. You know, as we've as we've been talking about, um, Isabel, what do you think that um, if we start trying to get a workforce that has a different mindset that is more focused around, you know, function, what's important to patients, and then how do we match those those needs? Um, what kind of as what do we need to shift in how we look at our workforce? Well, I think a key piece, um, and and this is something that has been very much embedded in in rehabilitation, is that interdisciplinary team uh, focus. And I think there's there's a huge opportunity um, as we move more to that interdisciplinary team focus, as we bring on COACT across AHS, as we incorporate function into the design of the new electronic medical record, Connect Care, I think that will uh, help to um, sort of um, change change our the the the, um, the goals of our care providers uh, to align more with our patients' goals, and um, you know I think that being being um, focused on outcomes um, and letting the patients you know identify what what the key outcomes are, um, and partnering across the spectrum, getting outside of the health system to um, put together, kind of curate the package, if you mm-hmm. will, to, to, for our patients to be successful. So I love that outcomes, that our outcomes are driven by our patients. Now, how would you and how do you see, um, how do you see that rolling up? Because if you, you know, we know we're, we are a system driven by big data or mm. Sometimes driven by big data, sometimes not, and we maybe should be. But um, how would you see the ability to be able to actually um, say that to identify and 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 show that that is is changing how we're how we're doing practice? Well, I think that you know when we talk about um, you know what um, components of rehabilitation, uh, you know when we talk about self care and you know. That's those those are very important for patients to to be able to go home. So things like toileting and uh, bathing and whatnot, and very often they're they're right up there for the patient. And and uh, mobility is a big one as well. But it's mobility to what end? You know, to be able to attend an event, to be able to you know um, go upstairs, whatever it is that's important for the patients. And then that whole. Um, the functional independence piece, you know, if, you know, wanting to get back to traveling, wanting to be able to to cook and make meals, uh, look after their children or their grandchildren, um, you know, make being able to socialize and go out and whatnot. So um, I think all of those pieces are going to be even more important. And I think I think the patients, um, patients and families, I mean, they are they are helping to drive this change mm-hmm. you really it's really about how they're going to live life fully when they're outside of our walls yeah, i agree and a few extra comments there i think we often forget that with patients we're the visitors in their lives um, yeah that uh, they're not visiting the hospital we're actually visiting them and we're caring for them and i think it's really important to understand that aspect you look at you know how we involve family, and I think that's we're starting to see this culture change with things such as you know openness to have families stay 24 hours in our institutions, and, and that culture is really shifting. When in Margie, you mentioned kind of measuring the benefits, we know from uh, you know multiple uh, colleagues, Canadian Patient Safety Institutes, uh, 
that they outlined that more we have families involved in care, the less safety incidents that occur. We have less falls, less communication yeah. errors, our outcomes are better, our experiences for patients and families and staff are better too. They're so closely tied. So I think there's a, a key aspect around how we can include family in this, given the, the confidence, uh, the comfortability to ask the tough questions uh, that as providers, we want them to ask not at you know, as they're walking out the door, but as they're, you know, transitioning through the continuum of care. And I think there's a, a key piece that, you know, we're starting to see change, and I'd love to see that continue to grow as well. I'd like to add to Paul's comment there too, if I could, Margie, just yeah, because through the, again, through the rehabilitation model of care work and specifically some adult community rehabilitation areas and pediatric rehabilitation more broadly is starting to um, look at this now, but you know, we're asking the clients themselves uh, through experience survey, you know, if their goals were set in a collaborative manner with them and if they were meaningful to them and allowing them to comment on that in addition to other experience measures. And we're actually starting to capture those comments and be able to um, actually analyze that and report back, you know, with the team so that they can actually act locally uh, back with their clients and families and, and review um make program improvements so it's it's starting to come I think that whole cycle of having those conversations and actually doing the work but also actually starting to collect the outcomes both from a, a health outcome and an experience outcome perspective it's it's rolling and um, and it's exciting and interesting as well as challenging to see what our patients clients and families have to say and it's really helping to inform local services so it's starting to roll it, it, well, and, and you guys have really painted a nice picture of that. Of the there's the experience, there's the patient experience goals, and it's you know are, were their goals meaningful to them? Did they you know did they achieve their goals? That's kind of part of the process piece. But then you know some of the research is already showing the the outcomes that can come from that. And Paul, you highlighted a few of them, and so it is about those kind of those two balancing those two components. How about now we know the system, though, is set up, at least our, many times, the system is set up to get a medical diagnosis. That is the outcome that is expected, you know, especially when, when there's an uncertainty around it. How do you balance the function and the desire to have that medical diagnosis seen, like, that is traditionally seen as we got the diagnosis, we're good, we've, the person's ready, we now know what they have, or that kind of mindset. How do you, how do you balance those two, and I see them as, they could be complementary, but often competing goals. Uh, I'll maybe start, Margaret's Lisa. I, I think sometimes it depends on the particular um, client and family, right? Sometimes, as you know, and I see Julia in the audience there through the behavior change, and um, some people are tell me what to do, don't tell me what to do, I'm ready to go, I want to go for it. So you really have to actually respect us. I think that's part of that respect and dignity phase of working with clients and families as to uh, how they relate to their diagnosis, but how we help to move them on to focus on the positive. You know, an another thing to build on your comments and probably more for younger adults and younger clients, but uh, I'm just reminded that yes, yesterday was Assistive Technology Awareness Day. And, you know, there are so many technologies out there that can really help patients to live independently in the community. And, I mean, we can kind of open the, the door uh, for them, but then they are finding so much support out there. 
sometimes through social media, etc., some of these virtual links that they make. But there, there is such better awareness of, around how technology can help to support people to stay in their communities. And also even the whole notion of accessibility in our communities as well. They're starting to get a lot more social awareness around that. Well, and actually, and this is, works. This actually ties into one question. Um, I wouldn't mind if you could, um, if the three of you could provide your perspective on that. Um, uh, where I worked on the, can the question here is I worked on a project for cancer care for a few years and found out there's great inequity in relation to rehab services um, and how you access rehab services across the province. Could you really, you know, maybe if you can tie into a little bit about, or you could you could discuss a bit about what has been done to be able to start to change that? Because where people, you know, if we want our workforce to kind of start thinking in different ways, we want rehab to be kind of that golden thread. Um, but we have inequities in access across the province. How do we, how, how are you dealing with that right now? Yeah, maybe I'll start this and Paul and Isabel, feel free to chime in as you, as you see fit. But certainly, I think from an FTE resource perspective, we probably have not made great gains in, in increasing our actual workforce. We have a project coming up here, actually, that uh, Liz Webster and uh, Elaine Vincent are leading around the allied health workforce around our recruitment and retention and, and reputation needs across AHS for rehabilitation and allied health staff. Um, but even though that's kind of been something that we're chronically working on, I think the good things that we've done to actually help change, it's the way people work. So we've been through everything from aim and process uh, improvements all the way to under our service options and our rehab model of care, thinking about how we work differently at universal and targeted levels of services, like the World Health Organization's recommended, moved away from more one-on-one -on -one direct care into working with partners, whether that's our partners in schools, our partners in families, our partners in other social networks, our partners in communities and agencies. Um, again, doing that group work, targeted level of work where it may not even be someone that's actually referred, but we're working with a population that we know has a has a common a common problem. So, and again, trying to move forward as well um, mm -hmm. into that prevention end of the continuum. So, I think we've done a lot of things in our service delivery and in our process end of life to help improve that access and working on sharing directory information with physicians and PCNs and for our clients and families to access um, the Alberta Health Services external website as well. So I think lots, we've done so much in the rehab world to try to improve that access and to try to address the inequities across the province. We're still working on it. Uh, mm -hmm. We've developed standardized services and core clinical activities and lots of great nuggets to help us move forward. So thank you for that question, Sarah. We've, we've got a long ways to go, but we've made some great gains too. Sounds like you're doing taking a much more networked approach to rehab in many ways. And another thing too, uh, I think to add, uh, Sarah, to your, to your question, is, um, you know, we're not the only jurisdiction that is um, facing these challenges. When you look at other jurisdictions, Australia, the U.S., um, you know, the, the need to kind of um, pay attention to um, equity of service is a, is a big issue. And I think there are opportunities with technology, with taking a more fulsome 
province-wide approach, as Lisa has shared. I, I am, I have confidence that we're we're going to move in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for my for myself, I think before HS was existing, we we worked a lot in our silos within our our local health authorities, even within our own hospitals, and. That evolution is changing. It's been a slow slog, but I'm seeing great work happening around how we connect as programs across the province. Uh, a great example is within our brain injury population. We have an amazing uh, rehabilitative center in, in Pinoca, the Albert Johnson Center. So how do our, our groups across the province uh, really filter in and, and have that kind of rehabilitative model with a center of excellence and support that? And I think that's, you know, we're starting to shift there. I think the support from the strategic clinical networks is allowing not only myself as a, a manager of a small program understand the excellences that are happening, but now they're allowing us to understand internationally where the best practices are, supporting us with grounded evidence and research. I think we're really starting to break barriers there. Uh, and both uh, Isabel and Lisa talked about this. I think we all need to look at uh, our, our scope of practice in the setting we work in as well. And that, when I say scope of practice, it gives me a bit of chills because that's something that we hear a lot in the nursing profession. And I don't want to get people too caught up on what is in and out of your scope. But I think we need to understand the patient group we're working with, uh, whether we're in a, a remote northern or southern community or in a, in a big uh, booming city, we have to understand what role you can play with the patient. I think we have to look at uh, our skills, our comfortabilities, and, and you know, the patient's outcomes as well. Think about how all care providers um, can really help manage the rehabilitative process. And I think from a nursing role, um, for so long we've been waiting for permission to help support our allied health colleagues. We see them as the experts, but how do we move past that allied health model of three hours of rehab a day um, to rehab being 24 hours a day? We're nurses, healthcare aides are a huge part of it. Well, uh, physio assistants, how can they really help us have rehab 24 hours a day versus that historical, you know, two, three hour model that we might see in an intensive center. So I think shift the focus of breaking down silos, uh, really giving and, and encouraging you know, frontline teams to be leaders in their area, whether this year that's in an urban or remote setting, uh, and feel comfortable to say you have permission to ambulate that patient. You don't need to wait for um, try using going up to the bathroom instead of using a bed pair in a year. These small little things over time will make a huge difference. I think we, we're starting to shift there, but we need to make some more conscious effort. Yeah. You know, Paul, I, you've, raised, you've raised some really good points there, and I I'm, I'm wonder if we can dig in a bit to that because um, it, to me it, it sounds really the difference is that it's, it's that rehab professionals are not just about working with patients but working with other other professionals to help people with getting to the functional outcomes they want to get to. And, you know, your, you know, your journey as a, as a nurse started out as a very probably trained in a more medical type approach, and then you went, you, there's, there's some shifts for you. And I, I think, you, you know, we've talked in the past about some really great, you know, a great perspective you bring coming kind of living in those dual worlds. Can you maybe tell us a bit about your journey and what that looked like for you and what was the, what were some of those kind of shifts that you had you know I, I think of Tracy who commented on here who's a psychologist and said here that rehab philosophies and approaches had a strong influence on how I approached my practice as a psychologist and I had great mentors so maybe talk about yours in the nursing world yeah thanks Margie I think for a long time in my own practice I focused so much on that medical model of 
following pathways, ensuring medications are giving, assessments were done. Uh, it took me a little bit to understand there's much, much more to healthcare about that. And one situation I wanted to highlight actually occurred when I was managing a, a neuro rehab program in uh, Calgary. We had a, a patient and a family member who were labeled as incredibly difficult people to work with. And uh, as a manager, I, I stepped in to support the staff and, and the patients to understand what, what was happening. Uh, and it really came down to one question. No one on the care team actually asked that what matters to you question to them today. Uh, and a lot of the concerns stemmed from that one question. This lady had been in the hospital for quite a long time uh, and had no kids. She had no other supports outside of her husband and her family or her kids were her pets, her dogs actually. And she was chronically depressed, emotionally unstable to the point where her husband was starting to become the same because the care team really wasn't listening to that what matters to you question. So for me, it, I had to step back and think, okay, well, this is a, an odd request to see if we could have a, an animal or a pet come into the building. But in the end, it, you know, it's something we made happen. We, you know, the value of that interaction with that patient, the relationships that were formed by our care team, seeing the value and understanding their concerns, stopping and listening, saying nothing sometimes, and, and just trying our best to work with them uh, to encourage this it was huge for us. That patient became, um, as I shared, labeled as a challenging patient to the point where before discharge and transition, they were one of the most admired and adored patients on our program. And for me, life lesson to think about was you know, it is the little things that matter. We need to stop getting so caught up in our assessments and our day-to-day -day work. We absolutely need to ensure safety and confidentiality and privacy. But there are a lot of things we can do to work with patients, those little things, that functional aspect we talked about. So for me, that was a big aha moment in my career. Uh, and one of the reasons why I stepped into patient family-centered care uh, is because I think there's a lot of myths we can bust for, for staff uh, around how we can support patients and families. Uh, and so, yeah, one of one of my mentors is on the call today. And I don't know if she knows that, but Valerie Stewart, in my mind, is someone that uh, personifies excellence around patient family centered care, does it in the right and respectful culture, and is someone who I constantly look to for support and advice. So, uh, for me, that's kind of where I my philosophy changed from that medical model to doing with uh, and really supporting our patients and families in their journey, and and understanding that those transitions are, are so scary for them, and how can we do what can we do to ensure that, you know, we decrease the anxiety because we know they're going to listen better, they're going to have better outcomes, they're going to be prepared for the care as well. So it's a bit yeah. of my my thoughts and kind of where my mind went from a medical model to a, a patient model. Well, and, and certainly a great shout out to Valerie. I wonder, you know, and it's interesting because as you talk about that and we think about how do you actually um, I, I'm thinking back to some of the, the earlier comments about how you have inequities and, and kind of some of the social determinants of health that actually impact those inequities. In many ways, I think what you're describing, Paul, if you meet people where they're at and understand what their issues are and deliver care accordingly, some of those social determinants of health could actually be addressed. Absolutely. I love what you said, meet patients where they're at, and that is one of the key principles of patient family center care around that respect and dignity piece and asking them what they're where they're comfortable with and, and what can they manage and how can we do that and I may take us on a bit of a different journey here but um, one of you know the people that resonates with me around that what matters to you question is was the lead singer of the tragically hip Gord Downey. Gord Downey passed away of an incurable glioblastoma brain tumor about a year and a half ago and a lot of us 
that were music fans of, of the band uh, had no idea just how debilitated Gord was after his surgeries and how hard he had to fight and battle back. But the physician uh, in Toronto, uh, Dr. Perry, I believe his name was, had a what matters to question or conversation with Gord. Uh, and even the band was like, there's no way we can go on tour. But he said, no, you know, Gord said it to the physician and, and his loved ones and band members. I'm going to make this happen. I have to say goodbye to every single person. I want to look them in the eye and say thank you for what they've done for me. And I hope that this gives them a bit of closure too. So, you know, without having that what matters to question uh, in the end, we would have never have known and we would have never gotten to say goodbye or he would have never have gotten to say goodbye. Uh, and it really set him on the path of, of supporting reconciliation in Canada. And so many great things happened because of that one conversation. And I know that might have taken us left or right, but it, that is this one example I think is, is so beautiful uh, to honor uh, the patient and family wishes and, and making sure that we can support them in a safe way. It, it's a really good. That's a really good story that resonates, I think, with a lot of people. Um, go ahead, go ahead, Isabel. Yeah, no, I was just going to build on on Paul's comments. I think the threading that what matters to you conversation into the enhancing care in the community initiative is so so powerful, and I I am really buoyed up by you know the the um, the, the focus um, on enhancing care in the community. Uh, you know, enabling patients to live at risk um, and uh, to to stay at home. And I think that rehabilitation and that rehabilitation mindset um, is going to be key for ensuring that this this um, is successful. Yeah, and 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 really, and so it ties back to that. We are only visitors in people's journey and their journey is is continues well beyond us and how do we honor that because they have to be living their life like once they leave a once they leave a, a facility they're living their life absolutely you know and i think i had just written on the notice board too i think we need to share stories you know, obviously keeping in mind privacy and whatnot, but, you know, Paul's story we that he just shared, we have so many great stories. And then we have stories, too, where things perhaps did not go well and how can we learn from that. But I think that stories are going to be important to change the mindset. We have another um, we have another question on there on here actually, and it's about how do you think we can support staff across the system to feel more confident to work in the way in which Paul presented, and um, and be able to find out what matters to the patient, and maybe you know I don't know Lisa, I mean, you might be the best person to actually touch on some of that being in, in where where you work, but um, I'd love to hear from yeah. you guys' perspectives on that yeah. question. I, I maybe touched on this just briefly, but we certainly have some. Um, existing resources and strategies as well. As I mentioned through uh, the behavior change uh, approach um, with Margie and Jennifer and Julie on the line here, certainly using those motivational interviewing techniques and we've been training all of our staff in health change methodology trainings. There's over 1,100 adult and pediatric uh, um, staff in rehabilitation trained now in health change methodology, having those wellness conversations, supporting people with wellness scripts, um, we just released a collaborative goal setting guide and we're developing a workshop to help rehabilitation staff. And again, I think a lot of these resources 
are applicable beyond rehabilitation. Again, I think we just have to work on educating and sharing across uh, the system and with our partners. We're looking to have conversations with, uh, you know, our PCN partners and other agency uh, partners in the community. So I think we'll be able to spread that and really help people develop that confidence. Um, and at the same time, what's more important to make that work is developing that confidence in our clients and families and patients as well. It's really, um, like we've been talking about that cultural shift and that it really is a bit of um, a power and a balance shift. And some of these conversations can be really tricky. And uh, people do need support to kind of practice having those critical conversations and really turn it around into having a supportive conversation so that we can dig down and really find out what matters. Well, it really, you know, what the shift is to me is about... Um, it's not about managing a patient, it's about valuing a patient. And that requires a different kind of conversation because you actually have to value that they are the experts and that, that your goal is to bring out the best in them, not to manage them. And I think to, you know, asking, you know, the what matters to you question, um, it's really around the shared decision-making, not a one-way transmission of, you know, doctor knows best or nurse knows best or whatever, but it's a two-way relational process of helping people to reflect on and express um, what are their pre preferences and what are their unique circumstances or their expectations, their values, their beliefs. So I, I think starting those questions and having those challenging conversations, and as Lisa said, there are supports out there to help our staff um, in that way. And also, Margie, I think another great point on that is that it's not to your point, it's not prescriptive, but it should really be a dynamic process. And I think it's, we have to get to, I love what I read somewhere about, you know, we're appealing to people's hearts and minds. We're trying to focus less on the medical science and the technical processes. Not that they're not important, they are. But you get the motivation and you get the better outcomes through, through getting to that emotional level and that value level. And again, it should be also dynamic. It's got to change in response to people's needs, and we constantly have to reevaluate that and constantly ask those questions. It's not a one-time activity. It's a, it's an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. Well, I've read before too that that really healthcare is it's emotional, it's physical, and it's technical. And so we have to think of healthcare in those three realms, really. Um, and if you don't think of them in those three realms, you're actually not honoring. Um, you're not honoring what healthcare is. I also love the value-based leadership that we have from our CEO, Dr. Verna Yu, because I heard her say once, and this has just stuck with me, and I wonder if we'd get there. But if you stop and think about it, you know, we're all people at the end of the day. We're probably all users of the health system ourselves. You know, who who wants to be a patient? You know, we're people. Uh, we're a person, and maybe we'll even use less patient terminology over time and, and refer to people as people and by their name. So we've got to get to that level of personalized care. And so I, I just love um, how Verna has uh, shared that perspective. Absolutely. And I think thinking back to the, the great question of how do we change this culture with our team members, uh, I've asked Tracy Trudeau to post the uh, YouTube link for our, our wonderful digital stories. And I often hear that this is a way for staff to connect in a different way than they typically do in their clinical setting. It really tugs at their heartstrings. 
you can empower them, show some empathetic emotion. Uh, and oftentimes I hear it fills their tank uh, as well. So we often think a lot about data, but we I want to ensure that we use data and storytelling to drive our work. You think about historical norms, and, and I think this is one that nursing teams are guilty of. Um, we set our own policy and practice, and and really they're not a policy. So we need to think about why we've imposed or infringed upon patients' rules uh, or their rights. You know, a small example is that PGA paralysis work, busting that myth that you don't need to wear a hospital gown in every care interaction. And I think there's some really cool movements out there from the Institute uh, of Healthcare Improvements. When you look at Don Berwick's uh, kind of ways looking at reforming and, and rethinking uh, care is having people say, if you could break one rule to better care for the patient experience, what would it be? And, and using these techniques and engaging your staff to think about these, a lot of the times the rules the staff come up with are not rules. It's just some historical context that we've always had in place. So thinking about encouraging them to think differently, supporting, transitioning to work with patients, I think is a, is a huge piece. I think once we start to figure out and, and blow up these historical norms and focus on how we better care for the right reasons, uh, I think we're, we're going to be in a good place. Well, I can't think of a better place to leave our listeners with those thoughts. Um, thank you to the three of you. I think certainly um, uh, added a lot. There are a lot of nuggets I know I wrote down that um, I think were fantastic. And uh, leave you guys with, leave each of you with the question of how do you, what, what rule would you break to improve the experience? So just keep that just, thought. It's Liz. I, I, I wonder if we want to tell the people on this line about the July NPJ paralysis conference coming up. I think we probably do. Paul, <laughs> share. Yeah, there's there's uh, my breaking the rule for better care. So we're, there's a group of us uh, internationally as well as here in Alberta that uh, are setting up an NPJ paralysis uh, day. It'll be it'll start. Uh, in New Zealand and transition across uh, the world and we'll be looking at setting up an interactive day uh, here in Alberta and outlining some of not only the PGA paralysis work but the rehab is everyone's responsibility all the the move initiatives around deconditioning all of our friendly care so we have much more to come um, the core group of us are, are starting to get the plans together and uh, we're just actually working with our, our sponsors right now so there'll be a lot more to come uh, and for me yeah breaking the rule for better care is around understanding how we respect uh, and maintain patient dignity. And, and one small way is is that hospital gown, but also encouraging and supporting them in that harm reduction approach. So thanks, Liz, for that plug. I appreciate that. Uh, and thank you for your work with this this program and, and rehab is everyone's responsibility as well. So that would be my rule that I would break, Margie, is uh, get everyone out of a hospital gown unless they absolutely need it. Mm, wonderful. I can just share a little story about breaking rules a bit. So we had put... Um, a group of us, a small little group, and we're absolutely wanting to expand, but uh, that are working on this um, virtual uh, conference, I'd put a request out to our executive leadership team for an, a sponsor. And, you know, within minutes, yes, <laughs> I'd love to be your sponsor. So I think our executive uh, leadership team in HS is very supportive of not only NP NPJ paralysis, about, but about what it stands for, it's it's around staff engagement, it's around breaking the rules, it's around having fun, it's around doing the right things. So I think I think I think we'll see a change. 
I agree, Isabel. I think it it does require transformational change and it requires leadership and we know we have that and that really gives us hope and at the end of the day that gives uh, our patients hope. Well, we certainly have some, we'll make sure we can share out some of the um, uh, the dates that we've highlighted and Paul, kind of when, when the um, when the NPJ Paralysis Campaign starts, we'll make sure we get that out to this group. If you can share it with Sabrina, that'd be fantastic. Um, for those of you on the call who don't know, this will be my, this, we've done 10 change makers to date, um, and this is my last one. I am taking a year off to um, feed my brain. It's my sabbatical year um, when I will be exploring the use of, actually using a coaching model that is from the educational sector and testing it with um, testing it in the healthcare se sector to really understand how do we move again from that expert-driven model to that relational-driven model that really values and honors what people have in their heads and getting that out as opposed to telling people what to do. And I'm looking at it more from the practitioner to practitioner perspective. So really taking a look at that cultural change, um, which I'm really excited to do over the next year. And if anybody's interested, by all means, email me. I'll give you some information and we'll be probably looking at um, doing some further training with folks uh, in AHS. We've already done, um, we've already trained 80 individuals in this and, and they've found some really uh, great outcomes for themselves. So if you're interested, by all means, email me. Um, we do have our usual um, surveys coming up for